This morning, I'm preaching through the book of Haggai. I looked over Southside Baptist Church's website and confirmed that Pastor Blake has not preached from this book. <laughs> Actually, when I told him I was preaching from Haggai, he asked me if it was really in the Protestant Bible or if it was some, some kind of uh, uh, apocrypha thing. And Well, that's not true. He knew it was in the Bible. He did have to use his table of contents to find it, but uh, he knew it was a legit book. My humor does have an element of reality to it. The unfamiliarity of the book of, of Haggai makes it fresh, but it also makes it a challenge to preach. Haggai is composed of just two chapters, but there is a richness and a depth that makes wading through each verse beyond our ability in the short time we have together. So if you will allow me, we are going to do kind of a drone pass uh, over the book of Haggai to see if we can capture the flow of the book from a little bit higher up and by God's grace, walk away with something that will strengthen our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let's get into the scripture together. The book is a, rec a record of four of Haggai's messages, and we're going to use these four messages as the way to move through the book. And you'll notice that each of these messages are marked by unusually precise timing. So let's look together at chapter 1, verse 1. It starts out like this. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. So if we were to take that and move that into the, uh, of the calendar today, it would be uh, the, about the 1st of October, 520 B.C. Now the date is important because it marks two holidays in the life of God's people. The Day of Atonement and the Feast of of the tabernacles. Now they are both important, but as the name implies, the, the Day of Atonement stands as the most significant day in the life of the people of Israel because it focuses on a new beginning through forgiveness. And what stands in the center of this process of forgiveness is the temple in Jerusalem, which at the time of this writing has not yet been fully restored. You see, about 70 years ago, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and everything in it, including the temple, the single most important structure in the life of God's people. I cannot overstate this, this devastation enough. The temple was the center, the centerpiece of the Jewish faith. And one of its most important functions with the system of sacrifice where the people of God could experience the forgiveness of sin. Decade after decade, the people of God sat in a foreign land with no temple, no priest, no sacrifice until they were finally allowed to return to Jerusalem. And under the leadership of Nehemiah, 
they rebuilt the walls of the city, and under the leadership of Ezra, they started to rebuild the temple. And you can find that part of the story in the book of Ezra, chapter 3. I say started because what they actually completed was, was really just the foundation of the temple. And, and it, this completion, it was kind of a mixed reaction. Uh, and you, you find this in Ezra chapter 3, verse 11. It, it reminds me a little bit of, have you seen this, uh, this uh, TV reality show called Nailed It? Have you seen this? It's, um, it, it's where professional bakers prepare some kind of spectacular dessert, and then, and then you have these folks who have uh, um, shameless skills in the kitchen who, who are called on to kind of reproduce these, these desserts. Well, it, it's the same idea here. When Solomon built the temple, he, he had these professional craftsmen, and he had this big pot of money, and he spared no expense, and and then you have these people in Haggai, or, or in Ezra, who they're supposed to lay the foundation. And it's immediately clear that there's not going to be any comparison between what they had and what they have now. Uh, the millennials and the Gen Xers, are, they're shouting for joy because they laid down this temple foundation. It's the baby boomers that they weep because they, they remembered how it used to be, how the temple existed in its magnificence. That generation, that generation started the process of restoring the temple. But subsequent generations didn't complete it. And the Lord describes why. Chapter 1 of Haggai Verse 2, thus saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The phrase in Hebrew, the time has not yet come, it is written in uh, almost a, a poetic style, like a, like a mantra or, or a, a slogan that has become a, a normal response throughout the generation that everyone just accepts as true. Year after year goes by and nothing changes because they have believed the mantra of the previous generation. The time has not yet come. The time has not yet come. Chapter 1 verse 3 offers a, a further explanation of the problem that that once again focuses on time. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you will never have you fill. You clothe yourselves, but, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go to the hills and bring wood and, and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I might be glorified, says the Lord. 
I want to make two comments about Haggai's first message that I think are probably apparent applications. Number one, these people have resigned themselves to, to pursue the temporary over the eternal. Look at the list that he gives. And, and look, in this list, there's nothing inherently uh, sinful here. Uh, nothing wrong with building a place to live. There's nothing wrong with food or drink for the family. Nothing wrong with clothing yourselves. And there's certainly nothing wrong with having a job to make some money. In fact, other places in the Bible have considered these things as good things, as common gifts from the Lord. But in this day, at this time, these pursuits have captured the attention of the people to the neglect of eternal matters. We'll get around to it, they say, but the time has not yet come. Of course, our eternal condition is important, but the time has not yet come. Eternal things become a matter of convenience, waiting for the right conditions that never come because their temporary matters absorb them. They comfort themselves with empty promises that they will address their eternality in time, <laughs> later. But that time never comes. So, number two, God uses crisis to show how temporary their pursuits really are. He, he puts some, some pressure on them. He, he, he tries to focus their attention on eternal matters. Chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, tells us that God withholds the rain and, as a way to show his people the fragility of the temporary. You know, and, and, and I don't have to tell you this in these days, but crisis really has two effects. For some, crisis drives them to playing the role of a victim or creates a habit of complaining that casts a hue of bitterness and discontent on everything and everyone. But for others, crisis drives people to take a look, a hard look, at the eternal matters of life. You know, shockingly, this is what happens to the people in the days of, of Haggai. They, they listened, they obeyed. Chapter 1, verse 13 says that they feared the Lord, and the Lord was with them, and the Spirit was empowering them to accomplish the task. That's message number one. Message number two begins in chapter 2. And the work has stalled for a lack of confidence. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, it gives, the, the, once again, a very specific time frame. It's just a few weeks later. They're making progress on the building of the temple. But here's the thing. The realities of their efforts are, are starting to soak in. And, and that's when Haggai gives them this next Message. Look in chapter 2, verse 3. It says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? 
You see, their accomplishments are weak and unimpressive as it compares to Solomon's temple. And this weakness brings discouragement and fear that their efforts will not be enough. You know, many Christians today struggle with, I think, similar ideas. Our focus for assurance in the Christian life often is an inward look. We, we look at the progress of the building of our own lives. We, we want God to be glorified, but we often seem weak and discouraged because the journey is an ongoing journey in the struggles of sin and the failures in the way we, maybe the way we parent or the way we live out our marriage. Our expectations of what we thought our lives would be often collide with the realities of the struggles in a fallen world. May we, may you and me, find comfort in the same words that Haggai gave to the people of Israel. Look in chapter 2, verse 4. Haggai says, be strong. Keep working. And I love chapter 2, verse 5. Don't fear. Well, be strong, keep working, don't fear commands. What are the motives for these three commands? Well, he tells them. God says, for I am with you. Well, why is God with them? Well, I can tell you this. It has nothing to do with their performance. It's not the size or the, the beauty of the temple that they are building. Chapter 2, verse 5 tells them that the assurance that God maintains his presence and pleasure with them is based on the covenant that God made with them. I want you to look at chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. I want you to walk through this passage with me, and I want you to see how many times God references himself in these verses. I'll read it to you. You follow along. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill the house, I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The success of the, the promise of the temple will hinge not on their performance, but on God's ability to keep the promises he made to Abraham and to Moses and to David. In fact, God tells them that this temple is not the final resting place of his glory, which really is a big surprise, right? Because throughout history, when, when the, the tabernacle, the temple were created, God's glory Appeared. You get this in Exodus chapter 40. The, the glory of the Lord fills the, the, the tabernacle, which is kind of a, a portable temple that travels with the Hebrew people. And then in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, the glory of the Lord fills the permanent temple that Solomon builds. And these are powerful and 
visible manifestations of God's presence. But when this temple is completed, nothing like that will happen. There's no drama. There's no smoke. There's no, no light that will descend. He tells them in verse 9, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. That, that, that this house that they're building will have greater glory than even Solomon's temple. And then he says, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Why? Well, because this temple that they're building will be the one that hosts the one who will be the expression of God's glory in bodily form. This temple will host Jesus. But it's even more than that. John tells us that Jesus is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That word there, as you probably know, that word dwelt is the word to be tabernacled, to be templed among us. In John chapter 2, Jesus would claim to be the temple which would be killed and then resurrected in three days. In other words, the physical temple was always supposed to be a shadow, a sign that points to something greater, to the living Christ. You see, their weakness is not a failure because the plan was always leading to God's saving work through Jesus. And so is it us for us today. Number three. The next message, the, the work has stalled. The first time it stalled is a lack of uh, confidence. This time it's stalled for a lack of holiness. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 17. Now this message is about two months later after the last one. And it seems that there's, there's another attitude that has stalled this work. And Haggai gives an interesting insight into the nature of holiness. So what he does, he talks about a priest that is carrying meat in his, uh, in his robe. And the, mo the, the, the meat is uh, set apart for the sacrifice. If the meat, which is holy, touches something else in the process, maybe like bread or, or maybe wine, does the bread become holy? In other words, can you transfer holiness from the meat to the bread? And the answer that is in Haggai is no, holiness doesn't transfer that way. So then he asks another question. Well, what if someone touches a dead person and then touches that same bread? Does the bread become unclean? And the answer to that question is yes. Let me explain this using a more current metaphor that I think you will probably understand. The nature of COVID is a problem. Because a person that has the germ can infect many people. That is the nature of the disease. But the opposite is not true. 
You cannot infect sick people with health by surrounding them with healthy people. Well, that'd be a pretty good deal, wouldn't it? We all, we all bring sick people to, uh, to the church and we all get all the healthy people and surround them and hope that, uh, that all the health that comes from all the healthy people will, will cure the sick person. But we all know that's crazy. It doesn't work that way, right? That the nature of the disease is such that health can't be transferred, but sickness can be transferred to healthy people. And so it is with holiness. And that is the point that Haggai makes. Holiness is not transferable by just being around holy things. It's just being in Jerusalem and taking part in the building of the temple. And those kind of religious activities don't transfer holiness. Holiness can't be caught like you can catch COVID. So then number four. The final message, beginning in chapter 2, verse 20. And I want you to, again, I want you to see the, the same kind of theme we saw the last time. Listen to how often God uses the word I. Verse 20 says, The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to the governor of Judah, saying, I'm about, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow, uh, overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I am going to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. Listen to this. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord. Once again, Haggai points to the work of God, and you'll notice how similar the second and the fourth message are. Both point to God as the subject. He's the one doing the activity. Both declare there is judgment, and on the horizon, God will save his people. So we've reached the end of the book. So in these closing moments, let's, let's put the storyline together and draw some final applications. Message one, the people of God have neglected eternal matters in favor of temporal pursuits. When confronted with the importance of considering their spiritual condition, they always have an excuse. Remember? The time has not yet come. In response, God sends a crisis to help them make eternal matters a priority. It's a, it's a gentle nudge or a, a reminder to rebuild the temple. It works. They are obedient. But over time, two attitudes get in the way of finishing the temple. Group one has a, a lack of confidence because their version of the temple is a, is a disappointment when compared to the magnificence of Solomon's temple. Message number two, God calls for faith in what God is doing 
and calls them not to look at their own performance as a measure of acceptance. Message number three is a group of people who believe that holiness can be achieved just by being near holy things, being near the temple and being near Jerusalem. So message number four calls for faith in what God is doing and bringing judgment to sin and salvation to his people. Well, we've drawn some applications along the way, but here is a final application summary. I think we'll all agree that 2020 has been a train wreck. Do we, we all confess that? It is, I think, in some ways, a shaking of the nations. I mean, you might even say literally the nations because it seems like every nation has been impacted by COVID. Now, I am not saying that this is the final judgment. I'm not saying that by any means. Rather, what I am saying is this is just a gentle nudge to, to give us, um, to give us the, the, the encouragement we need to think about eternal matters. It is a call to restore your confidence and your identity as the people of God, not because of your performance in constructing your own temple, but to rejoice in the temple that Haggai has been pointing to, the person of Jesus. To renew your confidence that whatever shaking is happening in your world, your position is secure in Christ. But it is also a warning. It's a warning to persevere in your faith and not to fall into the false belief that holiness comes through association. I think... um, This is certainly a danger we see today. I saw a statistic that said two-thirds of Americans say that they are either religious or they are spiritual. But they reject any definition of what that means. Spirituality is for them a personal choice and a private affair that is governed by feelings and experiences. But the call from Haggai the prophet is a call to resist this kind of pseudo-spirituality of the contemporary age. It's a, a call for community of faith, a community that holds to each other and holds accountable to each other holiness and points each other to the doctrines that do not change and that are the standard by which all people and all nations will finally be judged. It is the standard that was met in the person of Jesus Christ and brings us the confidence we need that we will be saved. I hope that you're 2021. I hope it's better than 2020. But I hope that the the struggles of of 2020 will bring you into 2021 with a newfound confidence in the work of Christ and the work of Christ alone. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for Haggai, who, who is, is speaking to the people of his day in 520 B.C., but it affects us in 2020 A.D. It is a, a reminder that your plan was always Christ, and that the temple was always supposed to be a, a physical structure that was temporary. 
and that your son Jesus was the, the final destination of all the Old Testament. And now that, we can, now that we have him and what he's done for us, we can rest secure. Father, I pray that you'll strengthen Southside Baptist Church, that they will, they will be resolute to be holy, to be different, to be set apart in this community, and that their, their, their set-apartness will be for their convictions of the confessions of our faith. The, the reality of Jesus' virgin birth, the, the, the perfection of his life, the, the, the death as an atoning sacrifice, his resurrection from the dead, and his, and his eternal standing before uh, your throne as our advocates. Father, we declare that to be true, and that is our confidence. And I pray that it will be the confidence of this church. We are excited what you have for us in 2021. Let the, 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 the lessons that we've learned from 2020 nudge us towards greater faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.